Hello, everyone, and welcome to SACS's Essay Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher, and I'm an associate professor at Clemson University. I'm also your host for this program. Today, we are excited to have the Vernon Wall as our guest to discuss his experience over the past year as ACPA president, his insights about navigating the pandemic and what it means for our profession, and whatever else Vernon wants to talk about. Thanks for joining us, Vernon. Thanks so much, Michelle. While this podcast is focused on current issues, events, and trends, it's also a chance for us to get to know a little bit about our guests as we engage in our work and learning together, since we are all more than just our jobs. So Vernon, can you start and tell us just a little bit about yourself and your journey into, beyond, through all the student affairs and higher ed kind of experiences? Sure. Um, happy to be here. Yeah, I'm originally from North Carolina. I'm a very proud North Carolinian. Um, I went to NC State undergrad um, and did my graduate work at Indiana University. Um, I remember um, thinking I was going to be, I, I knew that my major was going to be political science. Um, I just knew that. I don't know why. Um, I just felt that I didn't see myself as a criminal lawyer, but I saw myself as a nonprofit or corporate lawyer. I really, as an undergrad, thought that I would, that would be my way of sort of giving back. Um, and because, I, you, know, I, you know, I was intrigued by just legal issues. Um, and then it was interesting, I took the LSAT, you know, as many folks do, the LSATs before to think. And then I realized after taking that, I was not going to law school at all. <laughs> nope, it wasn't happening. And it was my junior year. And so I was thinking, what am I going to do? I've spent three years at NC State and I don't know what I'm going to do. And I remember walking into my um, hall director's office because I was an RA, um, Francine Bruce, never forget her. And I remember sitting down in her office saying, I just took the LSAT and I'm totally not going to law school. <laughs> and she goes, well, what do you like? What do you enjoy? And I said, well, I'm really enjoying my involvement on campus. I I at that point had been an orientation counselor. Um, there was an elected position um, on the judicial board where students would hear um, adjudicated cases before they went to the uh, BPSA. And it was an elected position, I was that. And so I said, I kind of like this. And she said, well, you do know there's a such thing as college student personnel. There's a degree in higher education. And I was like, really? She goes, that's what I have. <laughs> and that started the journey of me sort of looking at institutions and deciding that um, hired was, was going to be where I was going to be. Um, then I worked at um, in housing and residential life for about 14 years at um, UNC Charlotte, UNC Chapel Hill, University of Georgia, um, sort of moving up and around and really loved. Um, I was at University of Georgia 10 years. I mean, that was pretty much my home. If people ask me, where did I become a professional? It was at the University of Georgia. I mean, I worked with some phenomenal people. It was a great 10 years. That was one of those sort of snapshot moments that you don't wanna let go of. And I think the only reason I left was because I had pretty much, I decided I didn't really wanna be a director of housing. And I, you know, I was sort of like associate director working with, you know, the, you know in, the, um, in the leadership team. But I knew that I kind of wanted to move into the Dean of Students area, but there was no movement at the University of Georgia at the time. It's one of those things where you either stay in a position that you, you enjoy, but well, that you like, but you don't enjoy, mm -hmm. or you move out. And 
I decided, you know, I, I had a great, um, <clears throat> had a great uh, mentor who said, leave while you like something. Mm-hmm. And I love that. And so I left and I went on semester at sea. And that was sort of my, um, <clears throat> sort of just sort of my way of sort of thinking about what was next. And then when I got back from semester at sea, applied for positions in the Dean of Students office and was lucky to get the wonderful position at Iowa State University as assistant Dean of Students for um, seven years, which I loved, <clears throat> love, love, loved. It was just a great time. Um, left and then went to um, DC to be closer to my parents and then started working at ACPA in the international office. Um, so that was kind of a cool thing to, to um, <clears throat> work for an association that I had been a member of for a number of years and involved in, but now being in the international office, which is totally different in terms of working with policy and um, programmatic pieces around the profession. And then um, decided to assist the folks over at Leadership um, and which is a nonprofit that works with college students and leading with integrity. And I left ACPA and decided to do that. So it's kind of like higher education adjacent, um, doing leadership and then also to um, doing my consulting. And yeah, and that's where I am today. Just kind of wrapping up my presidency. I am now currently officially past president of ACPA. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you very much. It's... um everybody finds their way own way into the profession. And then I don't feel like anybody's route really matches anybody else's as we go through it. So um, before we get to like scripted questions, delving a little bit more into your presidency and kind of your vision for what the future might look like. um, What about outside of work? What are some of your hobbies, interests, um, things you're reading, watching, listening to? Yeah, I'm, um, well, I'm a, well, pre-COVID, I'm an avid traveler. Um, I typically, before pre-COVID, I was on a plane probably three times a month. Mm-hmm. And um, that, of course, completely halted. And everybody was checking in on me saying, are you going to be okay? And I actually, people think I'm an extrovert, but I'm really not. I'm right in the middle. Um, and so I do being alone well. Um, and I also do engaging with others well, I think. And so I really, it was my time to sort of, um, you know, I had little projects in my apartment and in my place um, that I would, I had a list of things that I wanted to do. And so I kept myself busy, specifically in March, April, May, when everything was shut down. Um, <clears throat> but so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm able to tell you right now, at this moment, I already have trips planned from now until December, once a month, <laughs> because it's, because I've already, um, I've already set up some things that I need to get done. And so, yeah, so I'll be back on the road soon, but it's been good to kind of be at home for a while. So traveling is, is important to me. I just, I think semester at sea did it. I mean, after you go around the world, you know, you just, I mean, I have this thing where I have to leave the country every year. My goal is to, to go to leave the country because it's just, it really gives you number one appreciation for the United States. And it also gives you, it, may, I, it makes me feel more humble too, that we have so much, we, we, we're, we're, we struggle. We think we are wonderful as a country, but we're so not. Um, so it's kind of that balance of, um, you know, knowing that when, I, when I'm in other countries, people know that I'm from the United States because I present in that way. And 
um, knowing that there's baggage with that. You know, there's some good stuff and bad stuff. So um, <clears throat> I do like, I do like to watch television. I do like, but I don't do it a whole lot. I, I, I don't like to binge, um, in the, especially in the summer when it's really nice. I like to be out and about uh, because DC is a wonderful place to just walk. Um, I don't think people realize if you're not from the district, it's, 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 it's a pedestrian um, town. I mean, it's, a, it's really set up for there to be um, a lot of outdoor activities and stuff. So um, yeah, I mean, I, I try to visit my family about once a month or so. I have, I have a brother and a sister, uh, both younger than me. And my sister is in North Carolina. So we try to kind of help her not be the go-to all the time for my parents. My dad's 91 and my mom is 83. Um, my mom thinks she's 50. She has no idea. She's, she's, she has no idea she's in her 80s. Um, and they're, they're both um, healthy and doing well. Um, so yeah, my family, I have nephews, no nieces at all. It's all nephews, which is hysterical. So there's a lot of um, energy in the house um, when we're together, but we haven't been together in a while. We decided for Thanksgiving and Christmas, we were gonna, um, we were gonna not connect. Uh, we just did it virtually. Um, and, and, you know, it was, we, we, had, we didn't realize that that was the first Christmas that we had not been together ever. I mean, usually, wow. We, um, it just kind of hit us like the week before, I think my sister mentioned it to me. She said, do you know that, that we've never, ever, ever as a family not been together during the Christmas holidays? And I went, what? And now we may not be together on Christmas day, but at some time in December, we would be home. And this was the first time that we never, we didn't do it. And it was interesting. We, I mean, I think my, my parents helped, handled it well but um, it, was, it was a different feeling. So I know that other families have had some similar things. So, but yeah, those are things I like. Love music. My dad was a high school band director. Um, so there was always music in our house all the time. Um, and so I'm that person that has, you know, 4,000 songs on my phone um, because I like way too many, way too much music. I just like any, any type. Cause that's what my dad, he would, he would bring in things um, that were, um, <clears throat> You know, because in our house, it was a lot of gospel and R&B. And I don't think I ever listened to like a pop station until maybe, maybe college. Well, in high school, I think I, I found that there were other radio stations other than R&B and gospel. So, um, but my dad would bring in sometimes music from other genres. And I'd be like, oh, you know, country. Okay. You know, he, he was always, he was always very inquisitive about music. So, and, and still is to this day. I mean, he's, you know, he's starting to you know, show some signs of early, you know, early dementia, um, which, you know, with a lot of um, folks, especially at 90, which is my, it's so funny. One of the best things that one of our, um, one of his doctors told us said, if he was, you know, starting to show these signs at age, you know, 60, you know, totally would be a concern, but he's, but, but the way he said, he said, he's 90. I'm like, he's like, you know, I was like, you know, let's let's make let's make the years that's left be as comfortable as possible, and know that it's, you know, it's it's it is what it is. And so I know that other families have had to deal with this in a different way, but we're lucky that we, I believe, we're lucky in the fact that it's, you know, it's later in his life, and so we we can sort of support him as he's, you know, kind of moving in his journey. Great. So, if your dad was a band director, do you play instruments? 
Um, very sore subject in our family. So you're, you're, you're bringing up something that's a really sore subject. No, my dad yeah. decided, <laughs> my dad decided when I was in junior high, he decided that he wanted me to learn from another band director other than him. Mm. And so, uh, because I didn't go to the same junior high and high school that my dad taught. Oh, okay. uh, it was like nine miles away. <clears throat> it was a different school system. And he was kind of friends with this other band director. And he had decided, he said, I want you to learn from someone else, not from me. And it just so happened to that person who was his friend was not a good band director. And so I played the saxophone for like maybe two years, if that. And I, and I was done. Mm -hmm. and I was done. And my dad to this day says that was a huge mistake that he made. He should have taught me. Now, he made up for it when my nephew came along. Um, because my, he taught my nephew how to play the saxophone and my nephew is actually very, very good. Um, and so he sort of made up for it in his mind by um, teaching my nephew. But yeah, I never, yeah, I think if my dad would have taught me, I probably today would have done more. My brother played the drums. My sister was a, did ballet. Um, we all had our things. I was sort of the student government geek. Mm -hmm. um, so I ran for everything in high school and um, in middle school, um, but yeah. Yeah, and um, yeah, and I, I was definitely um, the one who really sort of, um, you know, since I was the first, um, I sort of was the one that was involved in, um, in high school and did that sort of thing, so yeah. Great, so one more follow-up question. You talked about traveling. What are some of your favorite places that you've been to? Oh, wow. Um, <clears throat> Well, I mean, you know, there's some go-tos. I mean, for me, if I need to do a quick trip out of the United States, I'll go to Montreal because I think it's the closest thing that you can get to being out of the country. And it's a quick trip. Um, and it gives you a feel that you're definitely in another country. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's just, it's, I, 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 I do love Montreal. Um, you know, I was, I was so lucky to be able to go to Abu Dhabi um, recently and which is just stunning and beautiful. Um, and during semester at sea, I think my favorite ports were, um, Cape Town, South Africa, which was just, it's just beautiful. It's just stunning. It, it reminds you of, if you've ever been to Hawaii, that's what it looks like. Oh. Um, it's just beautiful. And then, um, Ho Chi Minh City, um, Saigon in Vietnam. Um, it was, you know, the, it was such a beautiful, vibrant city. Um, and the thing that was so frustrating though, is when, you know, when our ship, you know, when semester at sea pulls in, I mean, folks who know semester at sea, it's a huge ship. I mean, it 600 students, 60 faculty and staff. And when, and most of the ports that semester at sea um, goes to are not tourist ports. They're very, spe they specifically choose ports where students can really sort of enter in humility and respect. Um, I think the only large ports were like Osaka, Hong Kong and Cape Town. The rest of them were smaller ports. Um, and when the ship comes in, everybody notices. Um, and I remember coming into um, Ho Chi Minh City um, in Saigon and it was just like, it, it, was, it was on the one hand, it was just so exciting to like see this country um, in this city. But then it was a little disappointing because you saw this great landscape of most of the buildings were similar to DC, um, not no skyscrapers, all very, um, um, uh, very similar buildings in terms of height, except 
one building in the center that was IBM who decided to do this huge tower, which made no sense whatsoever. It's like, if you're going to build, and, and then it, it just, it just had you feel that once again, the United States comes in with its stupidity and develop and builds this big building, which doesn't even fit into the, into the lands, into the, um, into the landscape done at all. So it was kind of sad, but it's a beautiful city and it's great. Awesome. Um, okay, so one more question, and this goes a little bit back more to student affairs and higher ed. So mm -hmm. we talk all the time about how it's such a small profession and, you know, we're however many degrees separated from one another. Would you be willing to speak to someone um, just so other people can start to make connections? Oh, I also know that person or I've read their work or heard them speak or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it can be a mentor, it can be a colleague, whoever you choose to highlight. Yeah, I mean, well, it's simple. I mean, for me, Nancy Evans um, was my uh, faculty advisor when I was at Indiana University in the, in the master's program. And, you know, she's definitely someone who um, continues to be in my life and continues to be someone who um, just is phenomenal in terms of a, a scholar practitioner. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember, you know, she asked me to be a co-editor for the book Beyond Tolerance. And, and I was a fairly young professional at that point. I, I, and, um, you know, for her to ask me to do that and to, to be in that experience of editing a book that early in my career was, was amazing. And then I was able to then be a lead editor in the second book that we did um, toward acceptance uh, because she wanted me to make sure that I was the lead editor in the second book, which I thought was really nice of her to do that. But just to, she's just a phenomenal person and continues to be of support, not only to me, but so many others. Mm -hmm. um, and during that whole time, if I think of the people who were at Indiana when I was there, I mean, it was George Koo, Nancy Evans, John Shu. I mean, I mean, these are like amazing leaders in our field who I'm so lucky I was able to learn from when I was there. Um, Bob Schaefer, who was um, Dean of Students at um, Indiana University during the 1960s and then taught in the program would, until he passed away, he, he mentioned, he would mention that I was one of the last master's students that he accepted in the program before he retired um, because I met with him. I remember meeting with him during my interview and he was um, actually, he was, he had already announced his retirement. So he wasn't going to teach when I started but he did interview me, even though he was already re retiring. He said, I still wanted to meet you and, and, and encourage you to come to Indiana University. And I thought, what a great person who, he's on his way out and he knew he wouldn't be teaching in the fall, but he wanted to meet me and, and, and interact with me and engage with me. So I always appreciated that. that was a, those were two great years at Indiana. Um, and I'm so lucky to have had those phenomenal people. Other than that, I mean, I gotta talk about supervisors. I mean, I've just had so many I'm lucky. I've in higher education. I've had such amazing supervisors who um, I always give a shout out to all the institutions I've ever worked at, um, and I'm lucky that I've had great, great folks who've sort of mentored me and 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 basically, you know, given me um, some great critical feedback, which is what I love, um, and also to some great support. So, yeah. Great. Well, I love that you invited Nancy or helped make Nancy happen as one of the speakers at ACPA because 
um, I could listen to her tell stories forever. So that's great. Yeah, well, so it was really powerful too, because I mean, I decided I, when we thought we were going to Long Beach, it would sort of be sort of full circle because she was um, president when I was convention chair in Long Beach in, in 2002. And so I, I decided I was gonna invite Nancy to speak. And I thought it was gonna be in Long Beach so we could have a nice little, um, you know, it's sort of, you know, serendipitous, serendipitous, you know, that sort of thing. But then, you know, we decided to do virtual. I'm like, well, she's still gonna do it. And what's great about Nancy is I'm so glad that she, um, you know, told her story yeah. um, and the struggle of how it is sometimes to tell your story. I think a lot of times in our marginalized spaces, people want us to always tell our stories all the time. And for many of us, and I, and I, and I definitely relate to Nancy's story, I did not begin to talk about race until probably after grad school. Mm -hmm. It was grad school was the first place that I thought about who I was as a racial being. Um, because I kind of, you know, I grew up in a family that were both teachers and we talked about issues and I didn't feel, um, I mean, I knew there was racism around me and I would see little blips of things that were happening, but nothing ever directed to me. Um, now, now I know probably behind my back things were happening, but, you know, nobody ever called me the N-word when, it, when I was in school. I mean, those are the things that you hear people, I never really had that experience. Um, and so it had, and so as a result, I had sort of a delayed sort of reality that I needed to talk about my lived experience. And it wasn't until, you know, my first or second job out of grad school that, cause my first programs and presentations that I did were on like creative programming. I did a lot in higher, um, legal issues in higher education because I really loved, um, because of my political science background, I was known for doing um, I was that person that during RA training would talk to RAs about um, legal issues in higher education and what this means to them in their roles. Um, those were things that I did. I did not talk about race. I then started talking about sexual orientation, um, mainly because of my experience at Indiana and having Jamie Washington as my best friend in that moment. And we sort of navigating this and then, <clears throat> and then Nancy being the ally that she was, we started to then maybe do some programs and presentations, but yeah, it wasn't, it was probably until I think right around the time I got to the University of Georgia is when I started to do some more research and reading around race. Um, and, and similar to Nancy, I mean, Nancy, you know, would do, you know, student development theory. I mean, we, we know her background and her history. A lot of stuff she did. She took her a while to decide to do research on and on the lived experiences of people with disabilities because it was it was it was too hurtful. I'm sure. And she tells that story. Um, and, and at times felt that she was, um, you know, a sellout, you know, that, you know, I can't believe I've spent all this time doing all this other, all this other work and not really focusing on this. And of course she had to come to the reckoning of, no, it's okay. You know, I'm on this journey and now I'm ready to do this now. And now she's definitely contributed tremendously around um, disability awareness because of her work. And it's okay that, you know, some people, you know, will say, well, yeah, she should have done this earlier. Mm -mm. Right. It, was, it's her, it was her time. It was her time. Right. Yeah. Well, so you touched on this. You talked about coming full circle with ACPA. How did, how did you find that organization or how did it find you? And how did you make your way through it to 
the position that you just wrapped up at the um, conference a few weeks ago. Yeah, I, um, I remember going to my very first ACPA um, and it was in Houston, Texas. And I wanna say 1983, maybe. Um, and I remember, what I remember most about my very first ACPA was number one, the reality, the, the, the overwhelming feeling that here were thousands of people in this auditorium who also wanted to do what I wanted to do. Mm. And it was sort of a weird feeling. It was kind of like, oh, wow, you know, this is awesome. And, you know, you know, knowing similar language, we could, you know, I could talk about the courses I'd taken. And here were people who had, you know, graduated and then moved into positions. And this is what I wanted to do. And I mean, I remember coming back being so excited because I thought, oh, this is definitely what I want to do. Um, there was so much great energy. I, Nancy was actually the chair of the Commission for Professional Preparation. Mm -hmm. And she asked me to come to a meeting because she says typically who's in these meetings are people who are faculty in higher education programs. She said, we need more graduate students who are part of the commission so that we will know that we're doing right, you know, we're, we're doing good work. Mm -hmm. And so I remember she asked me and I was probably the youngest person in the room for a lot, for a number of years and stayed with the commission and was even on the directorate um, at one point. Um, little known fact, Careers in Student Affairs Month um, was started by me and a few other people. Oh, wow. <laughs> little known fact, a lot of people don't know it, it was me, Susan Comavus, Nancy Evans, um, Paul Iaro, who was president, I think at the time of ACPA, and me, we were on a committee. Um, it was called the Task Force on Recruitment. And we did the very first careers in student affairs week. Um, and then it turned into, of course, careers in student affairs month and both ACP and NASPA and actually the whole profession does that. But yep, yep, little known fact, okay. I was a part of that. So that was kind of cool. Um, and yeah, then I, you know, I remember going to the, um, the um, standing committee at the time, there were standing committees for multicultural affairs and standing committee for GLBT. I remember going to those meetings and being involved. Um, and I just, what, what, what's different about ACPA, and I tell this, and this is different than any other association in higher education. ACPA believes that no matter what level you are, from graduate student, new professional, mid-level, senior, faculty member, higher education adjacent, whoever you are, you can be involved in the association in a leadership role. Maybe not all of them. You may not be ACPA president as a graduate student, but there are entry points for every level. Mm -hmm. That is not the case for any other association in higher education. It's very difficult if you are a younger professional to be involved in leadership. And I think that that sets us apart. Um, now, there's some, there's some challenges with that and there's some, um, and there's some, some struggles and there's some successes with that. But I do believe that I remember very vividly, you know, being involved and quickly becoming um, involved in leadership in, in several entities. Um, and then, you know, I did, I was on the executive council way back um, as a member at large. Um, and then um, after I moved into the international office, to be completely honest, I didn't really think, I thought that was sort of the end of my ACPA involvement because I became sort of a exhibitor then and got that experience. Well, well, in the international office, I became a staff member. And so totally different experience in terms of being paid by ACPA. Um, 
And then after that became an exhibitor through leadership. So it kind of, you know, I saw myself going further away from um, leadership roles. And so I didn't really think about being in the leadership anymore. And then um, I randomly got a call from the um, nominations on elections committee that said, hey, just want to let you know, um, somebody nominated you for ACPA president. I'm like, what? <laughs> Not on my radar at all. You know, I've been working with leadership, um, doing some, you know, doing my consulting and, and I said, and they're like, are you interested? And I said, well, they call me on a Friday and I said, well, give me until Monday. If I can write a statement that sort of feels like me and, 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 and gives me, gives a sense for what I can contribute, then I would do it. Um, and I spent the weekend sort of just jotting some notes down. And I think on Sunday, I wrote a statement and I looked at it and I'm like, oh, I like this. Okay. So I turned it in and then got elected. So it was, it was definitely not something I was looking. I, I had at one point thought that I maybe would run at some point, but then, you know, life takes you in a different direction. And then, and I thought, you know, eh, I guess that's not where I'm supposed to be. And then it kind of brought me right back, which is so interesting, but yeah. You have any idea how many um, national conferences you've been to? Oh my God. Um, Maybe it's easier. How many have you not been to? <laughs> I think I've only missed one ACPA convention. That was when I was um, on semester at sea. Uh -huh. And I think I missed two NASPA conventions. One because I was on semester at sea and the other because I was boycotting because they were going to Arizona. <laughs> uh -huh. um, during that time when we were not happy with Arizona, um, which is now too, but anyway. Um, but yeah, and um, I've always been, um, you know, I've always, I, I, I was in a graduate program that supported both associations from the beginning. Um, and I have always been, you know, and, and part of my, um, my statements around um, priorities for my, for, during my presidency was, one was, it's not ACPA or NASPA, it's ACPA and NASPA. And always felt that way. There've been times in my um, career that I've been, um, I've found much more professional development support from NASPA based on my role. Um, and other times it was ACPA. I mean, and also to the, you know, I'm a big, um, I'm a big supporter of regional conferences and state conferences and also to, um, the functional area associations, because, you know, based on my role, you know, when I was in housing, I was involved in a Google eye, you know, and then, and I remember, you know, I, I was very involved in SACSA. I think I was program chair when Brenda Richardson was president. So, um, you know, I, I really, and what I love about um, regional and state associations is you get a bigger breadth of campuses, like community colleges, HBCUs, um, Hispanic serving institutions, tribal colleges, you get, and, and I know my involvement in GCPA, Georgia College Personnel Association really helped me understand more about other campuses. Cause I'd only been, I've only worked on um, land grant, you know, PWIs, you know, large land grant, PWIs, that's all I've done. And so to be able to talk and interact with folks who were on other campuses, small privates, um, community colleges, it was really through the regional and, and state 
associations that I was able to do that in some of the functional areas, which helped me be broader in terms of my knowledge around other campuses. So, and, I, and even to this day, it helps me as I sort of navigate what's next um, in higher education to know that, you know, I get a little frustrated when I read the Chronicle of Higher Education. They always focus on large publics um, or a certain number of um, private institutions that they'll mention every now and then. But, you know, even during the pen, even during the first few months in March, April, and May of the pandemic, when everybody was talking about how, how horrific higher education, well, how the experience of higher education will be for folks, but not thinking about the fact that um, community colleges have had experience in virtual platforms and not even thinking about the fact that do we look to our colleagues in community colleges to be of assistance to us? Um, nope, it was all about how horrible things are on these large public institutions. And I'm like, you do know there's some people that have done this before. Right. Um, and But we get very, very narrow focused in higher education sometimes. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, the last event that I was, I guess, officially attending before our pandemic stuff kicked in, um, in terms of changes on our campus, was SCCPA's 50th, and you were the speaker there. And we got the call, I think the conference ended on Sunday, mm -hmm. and we were told that spring break would be extended. It got extended for a long time. So um, as you think about the pandemic and your, your presidency and your leadership, I'm interested in certainly if there are things you feel were compromised or lost, but also opportunities that just may never have entered the conversation if we hadn't had to navigate that situation. So what are, what are some things that come to mind for you? Well, I mean, you know, the very first thing, um, for me is, and I, I love telling the stories, is one, I, I want to say it was just before I either, I think it was just before I flew to Myrtle Beach for SCCPA, I was on the phone with Chris Moody, our executive director, and he basically said, hey, welcome back from Nashville. Um, we need to talk about COVID. <laughs> and we had no idea. I remember um, Bill McDonald, um, who's a very good friend of mine from um, uh, my University of Georgia days, ask a question at um, SCCPA that basically was, what do you think is gonna happen? And I remember standing there going, I have no idea. And you know, I'm feeling sort of helpless. It's like, I can't even fathom what will happen in the next month, two, three, four. Um, and I remember getting a, um, a card on my flight home. I got a card from the flight attendant um, that basically said, thank you so much for, um, for um, allowing us to, you know, serve you, you know, because since I fly a lot, they were very nice. And, and, but, and I remember posting um, that um, I'm, you know, here's my last flight before I'm grounded. Um, and I hope to see you all in April. Don't know where that came from. Don't know why I thought that you know, because we didn't know. We all were like, um, yeah, we'll just, we'll have to be, be shut down for a month and then we'll be back. Right. I don't know where that came from. But the thing was, is what was great is when Chris and I had the conversation, he was able to start forecasting. 
um, our association because we are a membership driven um, association and we are um, events and program and professional development. Mm -hmm. So, you know, let's think about it. The two places where we would take the biggest hit wouldn't it be number one, membership, because folks aren't able to renew their memberships. And number two, uh, professional development, they won't be able to pay for to go to things. And so we, I was, we were able to spend time thinking about what do we need to do now? And so the very first thing was just providing free crowdsourcing opportunities for people to just gather virtually to talk and share resources and navigate. And we just, our goal was to try to be there for higher education and for student affairs folk while they navigated this tough time. Um, and I feel we did that. And as a result, and we moved quickly, all of our, um, our in-person experiences to virtual um, with little or no penalty, um, which, is, which is all the props to the international office for that in terms of navigating all of that. Um, and we just tried to keep in touch um, we also did a member survey that we did once a month to see the trends um, in, in professional development funding, in membership. And so that was our goal. We said, we just got to stay afloat um, because we knew that uh, we saw other associations starting to flounder. Um, and I will say that the great thing about higher education as an industry is that we talk to each other um, and we know that we're in this together. Um, it was always, you know, always use the example of if you look at the airline industry and how they navigated COVID, they were not talking to each other at all. Right. You know, it was all about profit. It was all about we're going to do something better. Nobody was talking to each other and it was just horrible. And many of and, and I do believe that if Delta is probably the only airline in my mind that that survived it in a really positive way, because they did do some some conversations, not with other airlines, but with other industries. But. But in higher education, the great thing is, is that the executive directors talk to each other. And while they may not be completely transparent to each other, because, you know, it, it's, it's a business, they are definitely talking to each other to say, how can we be supportive of each other? And for us to end 2020 with a profit um, and really, really is a testament to great work that the international office did. Um, now, that being said, as we look to 2021, 2022, I do believe that similar to colleges and universities, higher education will feel even more of an impact of COVID-19 um, as we then sort of navigate who's coming back and when they're coming back. You know, do we, how do we do a convention now when we know we can do it completely virtual? Um, we know that people will yearn to be back together, but we've got to think of a way to offer a an online experience for pretty much anything that we do. Um, and how does that look? Because we know that it's expensive. We, we're not gonna be able to do, you know, what, what I've had people tell me is that, oh, so in St. Louis, you're just gonna have an in-person experience, but you're gonna just um, sort of show all of the pro, you know, you're gonna stream all of the programs on demand to everybody who, want, who can't come. I'm like, no, we can't do that. It's cost prohibitive, there's no way that we could do that. So, but how do we provide an online experience and an in-person experience and still knowing that we have hotel contracts, knowing that we have convention center contracts, how can we continue to, to, to kind of navigate all of that together? So, so yeah, I do believe that we, you know, we, 
we, our governing board, everyone, you know, folks were really focused on how can we be of service to our student affairs professionals and how can we keep ourselves afloat? Well, and I think sometimes those of us who aren't working as closely with the planning forget mm -hmm. these contracts are signed years in advance. It's not like, what will we yep. do this year? It's so are there other things, whether it's related to ACPA or higher ed more broadly, that um, sort of were provoked by the pandemic? So we, we did some things because we had to, but they actually ended, out up, ended up working out pretty well that maybe we should look at not necessarily apples to apples. We did this, let's keep doing this exact thing. But are there other things that we should, ways we should be thinking about our work differently informed by the experiences that we've had th through the pandemic? Absolutely. I mean, that's going to be the trap that we need to stay out of. And that is replicating things that we as an association did pre-pandemic just because we did them before and now it's post pandemic we're going to do it again. Similar to campuses. I mean, you know, I'm looking at, you know, what I did with, we had a great meeting of the ACPA 21 convention planning team. And um, Bernie, my convention chair, basically said something really phenomenal. He said, I don't really want you to do sort of a transition report because we won't, it won't be helpful to people because we're going to be in person. So we can maybe mention a couple of things for our in for our virtual experiences that we do in the future. But he said, I want this transition report to be focused on what did we learn that we can stop doing or do in a different way based on having this virtual experience. So maybe we move the awards reception that we do every year to post convention and it'd be a standalone event that's virtual that everybody can attend rather than being an event that happens during the convention when we're all so busy and folks aren't able to attend. Now that doesn't mean we're gonna do that, but that's one example. It's like, what, what did we, what did people kind of like um, that we did that we've always sort of, and, and Bernie said this in a great way. He said, there are many things that happened during the convention that we just wanna stop doing, but we, we're afraid to because we're afraid of the reaction you know, or that we've just done it. My, my favorite is why in the world do we start programs at 7 a.m.? That makes no sense to me. <laughs> I'm like, why don't we start at 9 a.m.? Why can't we just start at 9 a.m.? Because, I mean, we're talking about self-care and wellness and then we go from 7 a.m. in the morning until 10 p.m. at night or later. It doesn't make any sense. And so maybe this is the time that we basically say our convention shell will start at 9 a.m. Um, and what does that look like? So those, I mean, I'm, I just really want people to, because what I'm worried about is we're going to sort of, we're going to fall into the trap of saying, well, we're just going to redo what we've done before. So I just want people to be in that mindset because campuses are going to do that too. I'm so nervous about campuses not learning from this experience that we've had for the last two years or so and sort of replicating um, systems that have not been um, successful in the past, but they've just been a part of who we are. So we just replicate it. So I do believe that's, that's going to be the challenge. And the great thing is, you know, Danielle Morgan Acosta, who's, who's the president, who's the current president, who will be president during St. Louis, she's thinking that too. Um, she's like, how can we, this is a great opportunity for us to sort of reinvent convention in a way. Um, 
how can we be more inclusive? How can we be more supportive of folks and their self-care? I mean, everything. I mean, how can we sort of sort of reimagine um, convention? So, and also to our other um, in-person events, what does it look like? Right. So looking to the future and if there are people listening who are wanting to invest and wanting to get more involved, what suggestions do you have um, for people who just want to play a role in ACPA and want to start making connections? And again, it could be it could be grad students, new professionals, it could be senior professionals who are like, you know, this is important to me. And the the pandemic has given lots of us new perspectives on how we want to spend our time. So what are your thoughts there? Well, for me, it's number one, just join, join, join. I mean, you know, join ACPA. Um, and when you do, there's an opportunity for you to sort of look at the entities and think about your current functional areas and decide, you know, what entity would I like to spend some time in? Um, and make sure that when you join, then you sign up to get um, the newsletters and the information. In other words, join an entity. Mm -hmm. um, and it can be a state or regional association. It can be on one of the commissions, one of the coalition, um, one of the communities of practice, one of the networks, whatever it may be. You just go through the list and make sure that you click on a few of them um, based on, um, and then that way you'll start getting the, um, their information. And, and I can say what's great about the entities um, is they're really good about sending out about once a month or so an update, webinars, um, you know, crowdsourcing conversations on, on podcasts, you name it, um, resources. They're really good about doing that. And so you'll, then you'll start to get that. Um, and then, you know, when there are opportunities for there to be open meetings, um, attend and get a sense for if you want to be involved in the leadership. Um, we will be together um, in some way in St. Louis in March of 2022. So there's a great opportunity then. Typically, that's when folks do elections and, and look for volunteers. But that's another way that I think we can shift um, in terms of be better is not just wait to the convention to do all of our business. Um, you know, I want our entities to do more recruiting and, and reaching out during the year for um, things that um, areas where they may need assistance in. So that's the big thing. I think it's just to, to get on some lists and know that you can change them at any moment. I mean, you know, when I worked at Iowa State, I became more involved in the Commission for Student Involvement because I was assistant dean of students and director of student activities. Um, and so, and now with leadership, I'm more involved in the commission for student involvement because of leadership development. So I, that's the thing that I think people don't realize is that you have a great opportunity of not only connecting with entities that are your personal identities, but also to functional areas and, um, and level. Um, and then, you know, shift and change as you kind of move around. And, or, you know, one of the things that someone had mentioned to me early on is, for instance, if you are, if you, in, if you, maybe working in housing and residential life, but you really would like to be an academic advisor, then you may wanna join the commission um, for academic advising. Um, and even though you're not in a role yet, it's a great way to then network and, and meet some, you know, do some collegial conversations with folks and say, I'm thinking about making the move. Um, how can, you know, how can you be of assist? How, how can this be of assistance to me? Um, and that's something that I didn't really think about as a graduate student. And I'm so glad that 
you know, someone mentioned that to me early on is that, you know, be thinking about your trajectory and, you know, if there are places and that you want to be um, in terms of level um, and role and functional area. Yeah. You know, it, it's not limited to just people who are in those positions, definitely folks who could be interested too. So. Great. So what's next for you? I know that it's not like, okay, I'm done. See ya. Um, you're supporting Danielle as she, mm-hmm. um, you know, provides leadership, but what, what's next on the horizon or what are things you're currently working on that you're excited about? Well, you know, what I love about um, the current model that we have in governance at ACPA is that we have what we call the presidential trio. Um, it used to be, I remember way back when I was on the exec council, when, when, the, when a person was elected president, it was about their term. Mm-hmm. And they would do everything they could for a year and then they leave. Um, at least that's what I thought as a member. I didn't really notice anything about like the you know, president-elect or the past president. It was just about the president. Um, and I think about seven or so years ago, there was a very distinct shift where there, there needed to be a team of people because at ACPA, we wanted to move this to a space of it's more about moving the association forward than contributing as an individual. And so, you know, as, as president, um, you know, we've got, you know, Danielle Morgan Acosta, who's in as president, and then Dre and myself, who are the trio. And so Danielle just has priorities that move the association forward from me. Um, And then Dre will have the same. Um, And so it allows for there to be the integration of the strategic imperative for racial justice and decolonization. It has, you feel as president that you're not alone. which is which was wonderful for me this past year for sure. I mean, I never felt that I was out there on my own. I mean, I, I had people around me who could be of support and I love the model because it does allow us to kind of focus on the association. Um, so as, as past president, I'm my, my big roles are nominations on elections. So I'll be coordinating the process to select the um, governing board um, for you know the next term and a lot of governing board, a lot of governing, like a lot of elect positions because we have that set up so they'll come in. Um, and the person that is selected as vice president this year will serve as president during the 100th celebration in Chicago um, in 2024. So that's exciting. So exciting to be about that. I'm also chair of the audit and finance committee. Um, so I'll be looking at the budgets and making sure that we continue to do well financially um, along with Chris Moody and others just like making sure that we do well. Okay. Um, so ACPA wise, those are the biggies that I'm, um, I'm working on as past president. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I mean, it's right. You know, so you, you never know what the, what the universe is going to give you. Yeah. And pro- I think right now what I'm um, interested in is um, Wendy Sasaki, who's a former governing board member who was director of equity and inclusion and I had a conversation about how she was a little frustrated because on her campus, um, her president was developing a statement that was gonna go out around anti-Asian violence and around um, just injustice in general and reached out to several people. Um, and then when the statement without went out, did not incorporate any of their comments at all. <laughs> and, 
And she just mentioned her frustration about how, and I talked then about how I'm noticing college presidents and senior leaders are really not doing a job of, of developing statements and reaching out and, 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 and yes. And then now I just read this morning where the state of Idaho wants to um, basically combat sort of the, what they're calling um, the liberal elite that is on college campuses that are brainwashing our students, um, which I have to make, which I have to mention, this is not new folks. I, it's, there's always been this undercurrent of people who feel this way, really stemming back, if we, if we know our history of higher education, we know it stems from the 1960s and um, protests around the Vietnam War and that sort of thing. So yeah, it's just back. Um, and well, I shouldn't say it's back, it's been there, it's always there. So, I mean, as a result, it got me thinking, you know, do I want to, you know, pull together a group of people and we do a webinar or something that talks about university response. Um, and so that's kind of on my mind right now. It's all brand new, like within the last three weeks or so, because I've been shooting some emails to some people to say, is this a convention program? Is this something that we can, is this an article? Is it something we can do to help people write better statements? Um, knowing though that there are a lot of constituents. I mean, if you're a college president and you're trying to develop a statement that talks about removing Confederate statues and you're in the South, it's gonna to be tough. But how do you navigate that in a way that um, is supportive? Um, because I do believe there are ways in which it can be done in a way that people feel heard. Um, and so, yeah, so that's kind of a new big thing that I'm kind of working on. I don't know what it's gonna be, but um, um, right when I thought, didn't know what I would tell you if, to answer that question. Of course, something has already happened where I'm like, eh, guess I am gonna be doing something else. But, but other than that, I mean, I'm excited to sort of wrap up my past presidency and um, yeah, see what's next. Yeah, I don't, yeah, that's it. All right. Is there anything else you wanna speak to or mention, highlight? Anything I should have asked you that I forgot to? I just want to say thank you for for having this conversation with me. I I you know I I do want to make sure that student affairs professionals hear that um, this while the last you know six to eight twelve you know twenty four months have been have been a challenge for those of us in student affairs and higher education. Um, it's not really new. Um, anytime something happens in our world or our country that is monumental and impactful, it will impact higher education in some sort of way. It always has. I mean, we can, you know, we can look at the GI Bill, we can talk about the Vietnam War, we can talk about the civil rights movement, we can talk about 9-11. Uh, we can just keep going down the list of things that have happened that have been either catastrophic or impactful to our world and our country. And we have been in student affairs the ones who've had to step up. Um, and even though people will say that, well, this pandemic is different, um, I would venture to say it's, it's, it's similar in the sense that it is a catastrophic event that's happened in our world and our country, that we in student affairs have once again stepped up and done phenomenally. Um, to, for me to look back at our folks in housing and residential life, to look back at um, folks who are on the front lines, you know, I love, 
I love the term, you know, folks on the front lines because it's our student affairs folks that were on the front lines um, doing the great work that they were doing. And I believe as a result, being noticed by college presidents and senior leadership in that if we weren't around, it would have been a different story. <laughs> um, and I know that many folks in our field don't feel um, seen or, um, or feel that their um, contributions are not noticed, but I will tell them right now and I want them to hear that we notice. I mean, we are still around as an association because of student affairs as professionals. We are still around as higher education and we will be. We will be tested again and again and we will rise. We always do. And that's what's so phenomenal about us as a profession is that, you know, given as we move through this, this trial um, that's connected to the murder of, of George Floyd, I mean, whatever happens, we will be affected by the outcome. And as we see anti-Asian violence continue to um, just be prevalent in our society, which isn't, once again, it isn't new, it's been around, it's just, it's being reported more, which is, which actually is a good thing. So now we know more, um, but we just need to be, know that there will be flashpoints continually. And what we do in student affairs is we navigate and we do, we do great work. So I just want people to know that, to know that, um, I know that specifically folks who may not have experienced some of the pre things that have happened in our world and our country only through, you know, history books, um, it's important for us to know that this is what we do as student affairs professionals. We show up and step up and that's what we do. That's great. I really enjoyed this. I appreciate you taking some time and having the conversation. Um, and if I were to guess, I don't think this will be the last time you'll be asked to talk about this experience that you just um, led us through. But I really am I'm very grateful to, to you for your time and your leadership. So as we wrap up, um, <clears throat> what are some things that are bringing you joy right now? What's bringing me joy? Um, well, it's beautiful today in Washington, DC. It's just 72 degrees and sunny and just, and I, um, I live on Logan Circle, which um, is just such a beautiful area. And actually we started this in March because there was no bars and restaurants open in DC at all. And so a group of us would go and sit on the circle um, on a blanket and just kind of hang out um, because the weather was pretty moderate in May and April, last March, April and May. And we would never have done that if it wasn't for the pandemic. We would, because we would have probably been in a museum, you know, we, our weekends are definitely in DC, <laughs> brunches and hanging out and a lot of, lot of fun stuff. But the fact that we said, we're still gonna hold on to this ritual was really pretty powerful. And, you know, we, uh, you know, different people would come every now and then we'd socially distance on blankets and sit and just kind of hang out and chat on the circle. Um, and we're continuing to do that now. Um, and so that brings me joy because it gets to, it's a, you know, DC is a dog city. Everybody has dogs. Um, I do not yet, um, which may change. We'll see. Um, it depends on if I have to travel. I, I just don't want to get a dog and then have to, you know, and yeah, it's, I, I want to be a good, you know, I want to be a good parent. So, um, but usually people bring their dogs and we sit on the circle and it's just fun. So that's, 
that brings me joy. Um, I think that the energy that I think is in our country right now around injustice um, and fighting injustice is pretty powerful. Um, it's it's a different sort. I think it's, it's one of those things where, you know, that the, the famous quote by Martin Luther King Jr., the arc of the moral universe is long, but it always bends towards justice is so true. Mm-hmm. And it's hard though, because we see things happen and we go, are we losing our way? How can we continue to be a country that struggles with voter suppression and violence and hate? And then things happen and we go, yeah, we'll be fine. Mm-hmm. We'll be fine. I mean, yes, it's frustrating. Yes, it's it's disheartening. But every day of my life, I end the day thinking after I read or see something uplifting, I go, we'll be fine. Yeah. We, it, 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 it's tough though, because in the moment, it's hard to see. But I always tell people that in the work that I do around equity and inclusion, we can't always do it from hurt, anger, frustration, and pain. We've got to add to that liberation and joy. Mm. We have to. The only way we can really and truly be successful in this work is to, is to do this work through all of those. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the struggle is we do it mostly through hurt, anger, frustration, and pain. Um, and we don't see the liberation and joy. But what I try to do is every day see the liberation and joy, either, whatever it may be. You know, the, I, I took four years off of watching any um, uh, 24 hour news cycles um, because I just felt that that was not gonna be healthy for me <laughs> to do um, during the last administration. And I only got my news through print and on my phone um, through alerts. So I would read news every day um, that's how I did news. I didn't. I didn't turn on. No more CNN. No more Robin in the morning for thirty minutes, which I love me some, some Robin Mead. Um, but starting in February, I started again um, because I do love the news. But I just didn't want to. I didn't want to put myself through any of everything that happened. And it's been interesting because the CBS Evening News is what I grew up on. Um, my family, we, we would we would watch the news every night for 30 minutes um, and it was Walter Cronkite then. Ooh, that really shows my age. Um, and I mean, that's what we would do. We would watch it as a family. And now I'm noticing I'm watching it again. Um, and at the very end of every, every news segment, there's always a uplifting piece for about three minutes. It's always, a, the last segment is always something about hope and about liberation and, and I always, say that we need to not forget that. No matter what it's, yes, there's a lot happening, but we gotta make sure that we've, we've only survived as a people and as a country because of hope and liberation, so. That's great. And we need it to keep doing the work, you know? Yeah. We need it as people, but we need it as individuals too, so. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, I just, again, I, I appreciate you taking some time to talk with, with me, hopefully on behalf of many listeners. Um, but this was really a pleasure. I appreciate you. And like I said, it's, I feel like every time I listen to you or talk with you, there are takeaways. And like you said, you know, we have to continue to rise. And part of that is lifting each other up through it. So 
I appreciate you playing that role. Um, okay, so today's Essay Today podcast is brought to you by Saxa. We thank them for their support. Additionally, the show would not be possible without my new producer, Jen Lowe at the University of South Florida. Thank you and welcome to the show, Jen. And I will close with a quote today. Um, it's important to surround yourself with good people, interesting people, young people, young ideas. Go places, learn new stuff, look at the world with wonder and don't be tired about it. And the quote is by Angela Bassett. And I sort of anticipated it might be relevant given our conversation today, Vernon. So um, thanks for setting me up for the right quote. I appreciate that. Cool. Um, my name is Michelle Botcher, and it has been a pleasure having this conversation today. And have a beautiful day. Take care, everyone. Thank you.